So guys, like we actually launched, we actually, you know, like this is episode two, right? Exactly. Episode two. Unbelievable. Um, and it, like two weeks, three weeks, it's all it took and boom, off we go. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I don't want to get too, uh, too meta here because we actually have like a ton of cool stuff that we want to talk about this week, but I do think it's worth taking a moment to just say thank you to our listeners so far, because I mean, really thank you. You guys have been um, unbelievably supportive. Uh, I don't think I was expecting this much um, positivity. We've been getting emails and tweets and reviews uh, and even donations. Um, and it's just donations. Yeah, it's crazy. Wow. I know it's it's crazy, but it's it's worth taking a moment to say that we all super super appreciate the support. It's it's unbelievable, and we will do our best to continue earning it um, with future episodes. Yep. If you could see me right now, my hat is in my hand over my heart saying thank you. It's a Canadian thing. Thank you so much, guys. It, it really means a lot to us. I think we should take a minute a minute to um, tell our listeners, uh, other than the thank you that you just mentioned, which is really incredible. I'm still having some trouble believing in the, all the great messages that we, that we got. But it's still, I think, important to remind them that um, every little bit of help um, is incredible for us and to, to that end we would like to ask you guys if you have a minute of your time if after listening to the show if you if you like what you hear if you could just take a moment to rate the show on iTunes possibly even leave a review that would be incredible because uh, it really helps a lot it helps a lot to let more people know about the show and in the end uh, so that everything can work out so if you could do if you could do that it'd be awesome thank you very much it is an excellent point. And by the way, just um, so that you know, it's uh, we asked for iTunes reviews specifically because in the podcast world, um, iTunes kind of is controls the uh, the feeds and uh, the popularity of a podcast on iTunes controls its placement in all sorts of other apps as well. So that's why even if you don't really like or use iTunes, if you just take a moment, pop it open, leave us a review or even just a five star or four star or one star even rating. If you hate us, um, <laughs> it would be great. <laughs> Not so great if it's a one star. But hey, at least they're honest. Yeah, it's true. We do appreciate honesty. It's not limited to iTunes either. I mean, if you use uh, Overcast to listen to the show, as I do, for example, with all my all my podcasts, uh, there's a little button there that you can hit that says recommend the show. Uh, I think it's a star. And that also helps a lot because it, it then Candid will pop up higher in the search results. And that's... Uh, like I said, everything helps. So, yep. Thanks a lot. <laughs> cool. Okay. Meta over. Here we go. We've been talking over Slack, the three of us, about, um, you know, this thought of grain in images being this modern trend, if you will. You know, we have digital images with purely clean, um, no, no noise, no grain in the background. And we apply afterwards we apply grain to our images to make them look more film-like um so what do you guys think why do we why do we do that it's pretty weird because when you think about it the whole reason that people started adopting digital technology is because you could get cleaner images and for many many years in the film world the pursuit of cleaner and less noisy images was at the pinnacle of photographic technology and now it feels like we're aiming back the other way to an extent because we've achieved a look that is perhaps cleaner than uh, than we wanted or, or we've lost something in the process of cleaning the images up. And so now we feel compelled to try and recapture something from the film era. And I think it's got to do 
with more than just noise, I think that's one component of it, the the look of film grain. But I think there's more to it. And I think we'll uh, we'll dig in a little deeper to see if we can identify what it is about that that look that appeals to people nowadays and 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 leads to so many filters and so many different apps and so many tools that allow you to take your digital photograph, whether it's from a smartphone or from a camera, and make it look a little more um a little, a little older, I guess, a little more full of character, a little more um, from a different era. Right. Like this is this is where Instagram kind of like started, right? Yeah. Yeah. I think the social media is the 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 origin of this trend. And it is basically a trend and it'll pass like everything, like every other trend has passed before it. And I don't know what, what will come next, but this is definitely an aesthetic choice. Uh People like the way old pictures look. I don't know if it's because it reminds them of, you know, the 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 tangible aspect of pictures where you you could you could hold them in your hands because you had them on paper, right? And and perhaps this look is something that we all associate with something like that. Uh, it could also be simply that you know vintage things are all the rage right now, which is. Also very true. That's true. Uh, but as far as but as far as grain and noise, uh, uh, it, it I think it's worth mentioning that it's they're not the same thing, and that's perhaps why uh, we don't view them um, in 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 the same way. Right. Like when I was talking earlier with Alvaro, I I actually have one of my own images that has a lot of noise. I felt that it had a lot of noise in it, and I had said to him that maybe I should just add a little bit of grain to kind of hide it. And what was it, Alvaro, that you had said that, I, you know, I could get away with it because of, like, it was a difference in, what was it, luminance noise versus... Right, there's, in digital noise, there are two different types of noise that are uh, together whenever you take a picture, right? And that's color noise and luminance noise. Luminance noise is just different light levels, fluctuations in, in light levels. Uh, but you don't see color changes across the, across the image. But color noise, uh, it's like you see little little dots that are uh, a different color in, in, a, in a texture that should otherwise be consistently just one shade. So those two, those two types of, of digital noise combine, uh, but they are not the same. Uh, we, we don't see them the same way. And, and this is actually what I wanted to uh, explore a little bit. It's the difference between uh, film grain uh, and digital noise. Film grain is caused by the crystals that are in the film emulsion. Is that how you pronounce that word? Emulsion? Yes, it is. Yep. Yeah, that sounds right. Excellent. I'm getting better at this thing. <laughs> <laughs> so, it's impressive to begin with. but So actually, uh, the film emulsion has uh, this uh, little crystals that change color when light touches them. And that's how the, the image is formed, right? And different uh, speeds of film have different uh, the the grain is a different size. It's usually the, the 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 grain actually changes shape as well as well as size. So you can pick uh, different film stocks because of their different grain, and it becomes also an aesthetic choice when you're shooting film. Uh, sometimes I like, uh, for example, the Kodak Tri-X black and white film has a very beautiful uh, grain that I really like. But sometimes I prefer to shoot Ilford film because it has a different look. The, the grain is physically different. And this is also further complicated by the fact that the chemical treatment of each film can also affect how the grain is revealed on the image. Absolutely. The, the way you process the film, 
uh, has a has great impact on the end result, the end, the, the final grain that you get to see, as well as if you shoot an image overexposed or underexposed, all of that uh, is reflected in the final picture. And once you become comfortable with how it all works, you get to actually use it to your advantage and control that aspect. And it becomes just another tool in your arsenal to create compelling images, which is what we're all after uh, at the end of the day. Grain, film grain has a a very important characteristic, which is that it is completely random because it's just particles that are arranged randomly on the on the film surface. But digital noise is uh, a product of uh, electrical interference. It's a it's an electric signal, and it it manifests at the pixel level. And since pixels are uh, arranged in the sensor in a you know in a grid, in a in a regular pattern. What this means is that the noise you see in a digital image is not completely random. It has a it has a certain distribution, and the funny thing is, our brains are really really good at identifying those patterns and picking them up. And that's why we don't see digital noise the same way as grain. Uh, sometimes a digital picture actually has less less noise than a film picture would have grain. But it's more apparent to us. It, we we see it, it. It it's more glaring to us, and it's also not as not as beautiful, not as pleasing uh, aesthetically. So that's that's I think why once we've become used to perfectly clean uh, digital images, you're obviously sooner or later have to start. You're going to have to start dealing with higher ISOs, and you're going to start seeing digital noise. And if you compare that with uh, film grain, you see, oh, I actually like film grain better. So I think that could explain a little bit why we want to add uh, that that grain touch to some of our digital images, whereas we wouldn't be happy if instead of that grain, we had the digital noise to contend with. So, so Alvaro, do you think I could uh, hide the noise that I found in my image with uh, a digital like after post-processing grain you could certainly change the way it looks but i don't know that you could hide it they're two totally different visible things essentially you're adding two different kinds of noise one on top of each other basically okay so what you can do is grain um, or, or noise in a digital image noise doesn't kill detail right so you it, People, in fact, a, a small amount of noise can make an image appear sharper to to the to the human eye. And what you what you could do is, if your your lens uh, is sharp enough and you, your image has enough detail, which I know for a fact it, it does in this case, uh, you can always tr- trade some of that detail for a little bit of noise reduction. You apply some noise reduction in post-production and you're effectively going to lose a little bit of that detail, but since you have plenty to deal with from the beginning, then you should be okay in the end. Sweet. As far as replacing noise with grain, I'm not sure how that would look, but it could work. Yeah, I've never liked the result, to be honest with you. Well, I think the struggle is that there are, the you know, in digital, we have two different ways of approaching noise as a problem, because we can either try and remove it, which as Alvaro's uh, suggesting, tends to result in a loss of detail, which we don't like. Um, but on the other side of things, we we have the ability to add in um, a sort of algorithmic grain through Lightroom or through you know whatever post-processing software you happen to use. 
Um, and it actually, it's there's a parallel here to the audio world because in audio, when you take a very high bitrate recording and you bring it down to a lower bitrate, it introduces noise. Um, usually the noise is barely audible, but because of the way human hearing works, um, most dithering algorithms, and this dithering is the word that they use for, for this process, it actually introduces noise, but it introduces noise exactly shaped in such a way as to fool the human ear into making it sound less present. It's, it's masking the noise exactly the way that Josh is saying for images. So that is actually a totally valid technique, and it, it can work provided that the grain module that you're using is intelligent enough to, again, be inputting grain that doesn't look like a pattern, right? Because that's the, that's the trick, is making it random enough um, and subtle enough that it fools your eye into seeing it as just a pleasant texture as opposed to an obviously um, you know, a, a digital error, which is essentially what it is. Are there any cameras that are like actual camera bodies that are capable of doing this right now? Or is it just a post-processing thing? Like in-body noise reduction? Or uh, algorithmic grain application. Boy, does that sound technical or what? Yeah, it sounds pretty <laughs> geeky. Um, well, I think every camera that has some sort of film emulation built in, I would assume it does something very similar to that. Yeah. Algorithmically, as opposed to just a po just like this flat layer on top. I would assume that all digital noise is generated algorithmically. I'm not entirely don't quote, don't quote me on that, but I, I would I would assume that to be the case. Yeah. When it comes to grain, is there anything that's algorithmic? I mean, I think it depends on on your definition of algorithmic because, yeah, I mean, on a fundamental level, they're all algorithms. But um, how intelligent that algorithm is can really affect how the noise is perceived, right? Because film, film, and the way film grain works, um, not only is the pattern random, but different areas of the image, depending on the um, content, uh, like versus uh, light versus dark and things like that, will have different noise levels and different noise characteristics. And that's part of what makes film grain uh, distinctive and more pleasing to the eyes because it's not just one consistent look across the whole image. It's kind of this landscape of grain that adjusts based on the content. And that's something that's really quite difficult to replicate easily in uh, digital because most of like, for example, Lightroom's um, grain module tends to just add grain in an even um, pattern across the entire image, which even if you get the grain structure looking authentic, the simple fact that it's the same across the whole image um, is, you know, it's it's a difference. And if your eyes are sensitive to that kind of thing, and some people are more bothered by noise than others, that's that's another factor. Some people apparently I am apparently. <laughs> yeah, you're discovering this about yourself. You know, some people are really, really, truly bothered by noise, and for them, it's a constant battle of trying to find a camera that's going to give them a, a workable enough image at the ISOs that they want to shoot at, so that they don't have to do a lot of post production in either direction to get the image that they want. Um, but even if not, it's it's um, I think that where technology is now going, because this trend is is enduring, I mean, it may well go away, but at this point, it's in it's it's been here long enough that manufacturers are beginning to say, all right, well, let's see how we can get even closer to film than we were in the past with just this sort of static mask of authentic looking, but ultimately, um, you know, rather than just putting a sticker over the image, they're trying to see if they can integrate it the way that actual film grain works. Right. Right, like as we can see on the Pen F, right? The Pen F has that little, like, is that an idea of what you mean by a 
camera manufacturer. I would, I mean, I'm not sure if they've spoken enough about how that, um, so the, the Pen F, by the way, is the uh, Olympus, um, we should just, you know, for context, it's this, it's this new, uh, newly announced Olympus Micro Four Thirds camera, um, which is modeled very closely after one of their early film cameras. It's, it's quite an attractive um, camera, but one of the things that is distinctive about it is that they've built in um, a dial on the front and a set of software that emulates a lot of, um, I, I'm not sure if they're film looks explicitly, but they're, they're sort of like filters built into the camera and noise is of course a, a component of those filters. Um, but I don't know if their module for producing this grain or this noise is smart enough to take into account the content of the image as it's layering this on. I, I have no idea. I've not read about that. I don't know if maybe Alvaro, have you seen anything on the subject? I'm not familiar with the details, but I would assume that it's similar to what most other uh, filters do, similar like the Visco filters or even the Instagram filters. Uh, traditionally speaking, Olympus has never been really good at emulating actual films. Their black and white filter, for example, is supposed to be sort of similar to to Tri-X, I believe. But in practice, it's it's not even close. I mean, yeah, they have they have these looks, and sometimes it's not even film, but uh, but it they, it tries to emulate sort of a cross processing uh, of the film, which tends to give uh, sort of like washed out colors, and then and uh, it's a look that it's very distinctive, and once you see it. It's uh, it's instantly recognizable, but it, it's not modeled after a particular film. Right. And I think they do that with every every filter that they they build into into their cameras. I don't know if the ones in the Pen F will be any different, but judging from the few reviews that I've read and and watched on YouTube, I I'm not expecting them to be substantially better than than what we've seen from Olympus in the past. Right. If anything, people aren't like, they don't like them, do they? Yeah, it's not the most uh, convincing or popular film emulation. Uh, I think the the main attractive of the Pen F in that regard is the, the new position of the dial that makes it uh, more accessible for people to just play with the feature and see if they like what they see. But if you're serious about uh, getting film-like results from your digital camera, I would totally encourage you to... I'll take a good look at Fuji because they've traditionally been much, much better than pretty much every other camera maker out there when it comes to replicating the look of actual films. And if you're happy to do that in post-production, if you shoot raw and, and you're happy to dive into Lightroom and try to tweak and see if you can replicate that look yourself, then of course the the there are a few preset packs that you can install in Lightroom that will help you uh, simulate the look of many, um, many famous films from decades ago and even current films. And among those preset packs, I would say that Visco are the most popular and probably the better. I know there are a few others out there, right. but I haven't tried them. There's lots of them. Yeah. Each each has like, what, hundreds, I would say, hey? Yeah, there, it's a very popular it's a very popular trend. So, of course, uh, it's normal that we're we're getting to see more and more options uh, come to the market. And that's, I think that's very positive for, for the industry because it will help get them better, get them to be better. Uh, but uh, I'm very happy with Visco. Uh, the, the, those are the ones I use regularly. 
Well, I think it's worth actually probably circling back to um, filters, like specifically Lightroom filters and things like this. I feel like they deserve their own episode, really, because there's there's a lot of options. And if you've used several of them, then there's uh, it's interesting because they they each tend to approach the process differently. Um, and, and I mean that from both how they achieved the emulations on their end and also um, the way that they make your images look. So from that perspective, I think I think there's a lot to do um, you know for, for us to discuss there. Um, but what I what I kind of want to do is is zoom out a little bit to this notion of emulating film in the first place again, because what I find interesting is how popular this is among people who've never shot film to begin with, right? Because if you're if you're coming from the perspective of someone who shot film and is now in a digital world and is trying to recapture some of the um, some of the aesthetic look of of uh, what they were shooting on film to me that's a very understandable thing like it's whether it's because of nostalgia or just because of uh, just sheer aesthetic preferences they they preferred that look i understand why they'd want to emulate that but for someone who grew up with digital technology which you know most of the people using um a lot of these filter packs or instagram uh, are these days it's bizarre how keen they are to emulate the look of this technology that they actually have no firsthand experience with and that's what you know. I, I'm wondering what is it about the look itself that is so appealing? Like, yes, there's the it's vintage and vintage things are are cool now, but is there something about the way that these filters paint an image that makes it more appealing than just sheer accurate reality? I think you just hit the nail on the head. I think you just said the way they paint an image, and then it is in a way a more painterly look to to pictures. It looks um, more artsy in a way and uh, I'm not convinced people the, the majority of people who have never shot film I mean that are drawn to this look I'm not convinced that they are aware that what they're drawn to is the look of film itself right. I don't think they think of it in terms of it looking like film they just like the way it looks and it just so happens that that look is the way film used to look but I don't think there's a there's a, a conscious uh, uh, thought there that they say, oh, you know what, I, I, I love how film looks and, and I, I want to try and get that into my images. Uh, I think much of it comes from Instagram, actually. And uh, once you get your first peek uh, at something that makes you, your pictures look different, it's sort of like a gateway drug uh, in, in that you get uh, more comfortable experimenting with different looks. And uh, I think the rest of it is just the way the the trend has evolved collectively when, when as, as people have started trying more and more of those filters, uh, we've, we've reached this point where the film look is once again super popular and that's where everyone seems to be, to be after. And then, of course, the conversation gets a little muddied because when the actual film shooters and film fans uh, start doing the same and attributing those uh, great qualities that film has and, and using them to influence the conversation, I think it's perhaps easier to get people confused. And I'm not sure how related the two sides of the conversation are, but there's definitely some some crosstalk going on there. Right. There's a philosophical part about it too, the way you, the way you touched on it being art. Um, like I think that a digital image that is perfectly clean, perfectly sharp, everything is perfect about it is, well, it's too perfect. And nobody's perfect so we can't relate to it as well and it's like 
to me, at least a little bit of grain takes, adds some imperfection to it, makes it a little bit more tangible and, um, allows a person to relate to it more. That that's, that's my philosophical argument for the day. We'll just leave it at that. But, um, but yeah, like I always find with my own images, I just like adding a little bit of grain just so that it feels more like, more like it wasn't so set up or so, you know, uh, intentional, if you will. It looks more like life, right? You're right. It's interesting because I know, I mean, we, we see a lot of this um, just browsing around the web. Um, there's a lot of photographers out there who are very critical of filters in general, and they're, they're very unhappy with this trend as a whole. Um, but what I've found for myself, at least, is that I begin to look at filters as another dimension of image creation. So like composition and using elements in an image to direct our attention to a certain spot, um, filters are almost like a way to control the mood of an impression or, or the, you know, like to focus attention in a different way, you know, depth of field is one composition is another, but I really do feel like filters are, are an entirely new dimension for how we can, um, help an audience essentially see a scene the way that we intend for them to see, which is difficult often in a perfectly accurate image because, it's so accurate and all of the information is there in perfect form. So it's kind of, it's almost more difficult to know where exactly your attention should go. Whereas if you start to introduce imperfections in certain elements, it will bring others out and highlight them. Um, so there's also that, that aspect of it that I personally have found to be an interesting way of looking at filters. Like I, I like them. I, I kind of started um, avoiding them, um, but I found that using them in a subtle way on images, um, it does improve them. It, it, I do actually feel that that filtered images, if done tastefully, are stronger than their perfect counterparts. So um, there's there's also that angle, I think. Yeah, I absolutely agree. And uh, I think it's not so much uh, whether you add a filter or not, because uh, at some level, there's always some filter being applied, especially if you shoot JPEG. Um, every manufacturer tweaks the JPEGs uh, in their own way in camera. Right. So you're getting some some amount of uh, processing done that you're not aware of. And if you shoot raw, uh, you get a, a file that is not finished. It looks sterile, but it looks that way by design because it's supposed to capture as much image data as possible to give you that creative uh, option in post-production and to, to put the end result in your hands to to do with what you will. So uh, it's not so much whether you're okay with applying filters or not in a, in, in a binary way, but rather how much is okay to apply and how, and how much really isn't. And as far as the film filters goes, they take away some of that technical perfection that is sometimes uh, there in a digital image. And perhaps that that's what makes them more appealing to many people. But like I was saying earlier, I think it's uh, it is a trend because I remember not too long ago that the the trend was uh, HDR photography. Yeah, and, uh, <laughs> pretty much every every picture that you used to see on Flickr or on five hundred pixels or on these social social uh, networks that are built around photography for professionals and amateurs and enthusiasts to share their their images. 
you would see tons and tons of pictures trying to, semi to, to emulate this HDR look and where everything is super in focus, super sharp, super, the colors are incredibly saturated. And uh, that's a look that I, I always hated, to be honest. And it was super popular. I don't know if it ever was as popular as film is today, but, but it was definitely there and it was a trend. Uh, thankfully, and, and I'm speaking now... Uh, as far as my personal taste goes, thankfully that trend passed and I'm sure the film trend will come to pass as well. I don't know how long it will take, but it will, it will always continue to be a creative choice that many people will use because that's, I don't, I, that's here to stay clearly, but I don't think it will be the default look that 90% of people are going to try to get out of their images. Right. So Alvaro, earlier you had mentioned that Fuji is kind of the the best um, current ca camera manufacturer that nails this um, film simulation, and I believe Marius's review of the X Pro Two recently touches drastically on that uh, on that magic of grain simulation within a Fuji body. Marius, do you care to at all like dig into how the X Pro Two handles that film simulation? Yeah, I mean the X Pro Two is uh, is Fuji's latest flagship camera, and it kind of follows in the footsteps of uh, I think for many people the X Pro One, the original X series camera, if you will, um, interchangeable lens X series camera was um, was a very it was like a milestone in digital imaging. Not so much because it was at the forefront of technical capabilities at the time, but because the images it produced had a certain character to them that was extremely appealing and extremely easy to get. Um, and so it's actually been, I think, four years now since uh, since the X-Pro1 is released, which in the camera industry is a very long time. Um, but Fuji's been working very hard on the X-Pro2. And one of the things that, um, that I talk about in the review, and that is the, uh, the, the aspect of it that I can't wait to dig deeper into, is... Uh, the film simulation that they've called Acros. Um, Acros is actually one of their real film stocks, a uh, black and white film that is uh, quite recent, actually. It's not one of these old films, um, but it has a certain character to it that is very appealing. And the digital recreation is notable in a few ways, one of which is the way that it handles grain. So we were talking earlier about the differences between digital noise and film grain, and one of the aspects is that sense of, um, or, or, or that ability of film grain to vary across the image. And so when Fuji went in and designed the Acros film simulation, this is one of the things that they wanted to, um, to accurately reproduce, which is the, um, the nature of film grain. And so they've, they've developed an entirely new um, algorithm for applying grain on the acro simulation, which does take into account image content. So differing areas of brightness in an image will produce a different character of noise. And entirely separate from the Acros film simulation, they actually have this technology built into a grain module that applies to any of their existing film simulations. So you can take the advantages of this same technology and apply it to one of their existing film simulations like the classic Chrome, for instance, which was very, very popular when uh, when they introduced it on the X100T. Um, so to me, that's uh, that's a, another step forward here uh, in the sense that it's a, it's a way in which they've managed to make digital technology replicate 
a very subtle um, but important feature of of film in a way that makes it extremely convincing. Um, and I don't know if you guys have seen sample photos of the Acro simulation. I again, I look forward to taking more of them myself and sharing them. But um, I was very impressed from my from the time that I spent with the X Pro Two um, with just how uh, effortless it was to get very very beautiful looking black and white images and and with a very uh, convincing tonality and i to be clear i haven't shot acros the film so for me it's not a matter of how accurate it is to the original it's just a matter of looking at the image and and comparing it to existing black and white film simulations or to my own black and white processing and you know taking an acros jpeg out of the camera and basically being able to say I i'm done you know I, d I don't want to do anything more to this image it looks the way that I want it to. Um, and to me, that's pretty remarkable. Like just having a camera that you can trust with image quality in that way is, is terrific. Um, so yeah, I mean, that's, that's kind of the, the grain aspect of it. Clearly Fuji has a little bit of uh, confidence in this. If they're going to put such a, uh, an impressive film emulator or simulator straight into a $1,700 camera. Yeah, and and what's interesting is that for them it's not a like it's not the default, and I think this is something that um, is worth mentioning for people who are looking at the Fuji system and wondering, you know, like are they aimed at professionals? Are they aimed at casual users? Like where where does this fall? Um, the Fuji cameras all have these film simulations built in. Um, some of the more recent ones have additional simulations like Acros, which are not available on previous bodies. Um, but overall, they, they all have these available, but they're optional. So it's something that you only actually take advantage of if you explicitly um, choose to use them, which is great because if you don't care about film emulation or you're, you, know, you just want to shoot raw and process them your own way like you've always done, then that's totally fine. And that's what you would be doing by default. So uh, it's not really uh, like they, they have them in there. And to me, what I appreciate about the film simulations, uh, especially the more recent ones. Some of the earlier ones are not quite as as subtle, but the the ones that I love, Classic Chrome and and Acros in particular, they're actually not very hyped or very um, obvious as filters. Like they have a they impart a character to the image without making it look very obviously altered. I guess. Right. I I was very impressed as well with the image samples that I saw on Fuji's post about Acros. I think it was very, very impressive how it handled grain and everything you just said uh, kind of confirms that there's some uh, very heavy lifting done being done uh, by the camera and the image processor to get that uh, seamless uh, to, to get the final result to be to actually look like I would imagine a uh, film to look like. Uh, I haven't shot the actual Acros film myself either, uh, but I don't. I'm not sure they are. Uh, they were officially targeting to simulate the original Acros film. I think they were just trying to get something they would feel comfortable uh, naming after one of their famous black and white films from the from the film era. Yeah. So it's not exactly. That they that the new Acros uh, filter is supposed to look like the Acros film, but that it looks like film, like like black and white film, and really good black and white film at that. In relation to that, I, I would like to ask you, Marius, you you're, you've mentioned that the film filters, the film emulation filters, are not exactly uh, very prominently displayed on the camera. That you can choose to use them if you want, but that they're not like con constantly 
uh, nagging you to 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 use them, right? Is that correct? Yeah, that's correct. Then my question is, well, I of course assume that the film emulation only applies to the the JPEGs, but that's all has always. Uh, seemed like a like too bad for me because i i would love to have the ability to use that with raw shooting as well and to me that looks like a missed opportunity if they could find a way to uh, export a raw file that could somehow incorporate those filters and that you could then slightly tweak it uh, on top of that if you want or not but the fact that i would have to choose jpeg to choose to shoot JPEG in order to take advantage of those simulations always seemed like a lost opportunity to me. And the that makes me think, and that's the question I wanted to ask you, how much of a selling factor do you think those film emulations are for Fuji's current line of cameras and in, in the EX system in, in particular? Do you think most people who buy them actually consider them a priority or are they just a nice thing to get? Uh, when you buy the camera, but it's not a, a primary factor in for most people's uh, purchasing decision. Well, before I answer that, I, I should um, share the good news with you <laughs> that uh, you can, in fact, use the filters uh, on RAW files just fine because what they've done, uh, provided you use Lightroom, is they have actually added the camera profiles for each of their film simulations to Lightroom. So when you pull in a Fuji RAW file into Lightroom, you can actually apply the um, the filter settings as a baseline and then edit from there as you see fit within Lightroom. So you can, for instance, shoot a RAW file, uh, bring it into Lightroom, and then try out Acros, try out um, uh, Classic Chrome. Now, the only downside and the only... Um, for Acros especially, because of the way that they handle the noise module or the grain module, that happens on camera and Lightroom is not capable of replicating that. So you'll get the character as far as colors, as far as contrast, as far as everything else, but not the grain. Um, so that's a letdown for Acros. But for all of the other ones, it's basically on par. Like you, what, what you get out of Lightroom with those camera profiles is what you get out of the camera with JPEGs. Right. There are subtle differences. And if you if you really pixel peep and compare side by side, you will see them. Um, but who has time for that? Um, right. But what I will, what I, well, I mean, you know, some people do, but I, for me, it's, it's, they're close enough that it's really not a big deal. Um, but as far as whether or not they're a selling point, um, I think they are. I think that if you um, if you look at it on paper, it's like okay, just another film simulation. And yes, Fuji is good at them, but like, eh. However, I think when you look at the images, you can tell that there's something about the way that they've executed these filters that make them very appealing. And and the knowledge again, this is this is partly about convenience because I like processing my own images. I really do. I like taking raw images. And developing them my way because I like having my own look, right? That's important to me on some level. On the other hand, knowing that I can take my X100T anywhere I go, I can put it in classic Chrome mode, and I can take snapshots and then share those JPEGs immediately and have them look finished. You know, they might not look finished in the same way that they would with if I processed them myself in Lightroom, but they look finished to a degree that most straight out of camera JPEGs just don't. And to me, that there's tremendous value in that. Like there's convenience on a social level because I can go somewhere and, and share things with friends and whatever. But even with my professional hat on, if I'm thinking of, uh, you know, I'm a reporter or I'm someone who's trying to capture an event and I don't really have the kind of time to heavily process all these images, the fact that I can quickly blitz out a ton of JPEGs that are really quite good looking 
um, with no processing is amazing. And that is a selling point. I think that's a very strong selling point, but it's one that's going to depend a lot on your priorities as a photographer and on your preferences. Because for instance, if you don't like the look of those filters of any of them, then it, it doesn't matter. Um, the other thing that's worth mentioning about the way that Fuji handles this whole system is uh, a little known fact about Fuji cameras is that there's a very, very sophisticated raw processing engine built into the camera that you can actually use. So for instance, if you shoot only raw, you can go back into the um, camera's preview mode and look through the images and then develop JPEGs on the camera using those film presets and then make a whole bunch of adjustments to sharpness, to shadows, to highlights, to all those kinds of things right on the camera. So you can even, for instance, take their default and then if you don't like it, reprocess the JPEGs from the RAW on the camera before you even pull it off. So that in itself is really cool because it means you're actually using the same processing engine rather than Lightroom's approximation of it to get the results that you want. And you haven't even used your computer for it. Right. That's perhaps the most important thing, the way I was thinking about it. It's not so much about saving the time that it takes to process your picture separately in Lightroom, but actually the possibility to have a camera and smartphone only workflow from the moment you capture the picture to the, to the moment you share it with someone else or send it to a client or whatever. You have a, an entire workflow that doesn't depend on having a computer with you. And that's a fantastic asset for for people to use, I would assume on an occasional basis, because I don't, I, I wouldn't expect it to be um, all that convenient uh, to tweak a hundred images in camera. But that's just the nature of the of the beast, and that's perfectly fine with me. Uh, just having the occasion to the, the the possibility to do that on a on, on one or two images, perhaps a day, that could make a real difference, definitely. Yeah, and to me, that's that's at the core of of this feature's appeal is is the fact that you have that ability should you ever need it. And if you don't need it, that's you know it doesn't matter. It doesn't get in your way. But knowing that it's possible is is terrific. Um, and something else that's uh, that's cool about the grain, um, and this is something that is unique to Fuji cameras. Um, Alvaro, in the beginning of this episode, you were talking about the way that we see patterns in pixel because of the pixel arrangement um, in digital sensors. And one of the neat things about Fuji cameras is that their X series actually makes use of a different pixel array than the standard um, sensors in all other cameras. And this is kind of a geeky thing, but essentially the arrangement of color sensors on a sen or color pixels on a sensor um, is different in X series cameras, and they call it uh, they call it an X trans array as opposed to the Bayer array in, in most of them. But one of the neat byproducts of this technology is that noise looks more randomized. Even the standard digital noise, it doesn't look as patterned as normal Bayer sensor noise. So you kind of get a bit of an advantage there just because of the sheer way that the sensor works, uh, which is cool. Yeah, it's definitely cool. It's definitely cool. And there's something to the X-Trans look that many people like. Uh, I've read tons of reviews of, of photographers that use or review Fuji cameras, and they always mention how the X-Trans sensor just sort of has a different look to it. And um, I don't know how much that is that has to do with the array of the the way the pixels are arranged on the on the sensor itself. But I would expect, yeah, it it, it wouldn't surprise me if it was a significant 
if that has a, had a significant impact on, on the way images look in the end, besides all those benefits you were mentioning about the grain and the digital noise and, and everything. It's, uh, it's a unique sensor, definitely, because Fuji is the only company that I, I'm aware of that is uh, using it. And it's yet another competitive advantage for them. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, I was reading the article where the the Acros uh, film emulation is mentioned and explained, uh, and it caught my eye. Some, something caught my eye, which is the fact that it's only available on the Xperia Two because it requires the extra processing power of the new processor. Yeah. Uh, how much of that do you think it's actually true, and how much of it is marketing speak for we want you to buy the new one if you want to have this nice new film emulation? Um, I mean, I think I think probably a little of both is true. I think there's nothing stopping them necessarily, like in a literal sense, from bringing it to the XT1, for instance. But I suspect that they tried it, and they found that using the Acro simulation would cause a significant delay between like shooting the image and being ready for the next one. Because again, they're, they're, if it's processing and it's intensive processing that's happening at that moment, then it might impact the delay between shots. And that's a compromise that I feel they wouldn't be willing to make, even if technically, because then they have to explain it, right? It's like, oh yeah, be aware that if you use this particular film simulation, it'll be slower than the rest of them. And it, like, uh, it's just messy. Like it, that's that's something that I feel would not be- it makes the camera appear a little sluggish, right? Exactly. And I feel like that's something they want to stay away from. So I, I do believe that there is that technical impediment. I, d I think that they could bring it. I think they're just choosing not to because when they tried it, they found that it was not a good experience and they'd rather just have that film simulation available only on bodies where they can provide the same shooting experience as the other ones. So, you know, we'll probably see it on all future X-Series cameras, but it's just the nature of technology that some things are not backwards compatible. You know, it's just, it, that's... Oh well, what can you do? So uh, besides uh, this wonderful X-Pro2, which I would, I would be super happy to test, let me tell you, because it looks amazing. I think you also had the X70 to play with over the past few weeks. Is that correct? Yeah, it is. I have it sitting in front of me right now, um, along with my X100T, actually, the, the two sibling cameras. Um, so the X70 is, um, was announced at the same time as the X-Pro2, and uh, the name is a little deceptive because it's actually more akin to an X100 series camera than the like X30, for instance. Um, the, so the X30, the X20 are Fuji cameras that actually use a different sensor, a smaller sensor. They're they're kind of the consumer-facing compact cameras, um, and, and they're they're okay. You know, I mean, for the for the price range and everything, they're they're good cameras. But um, the X70 is actually closer to an X100T with some things removed. So it uses the same 16 megapixel X-Trans 2 sensor. Um, and basically you lose um, the optical viewfinder. Actually, you, you lose a viewfinder of any kind. There's no EVF, there's no OVF, there's nothing. It's just the screen. Um, it's much smaller. And uh, it's a fixed lens camera like the X100 series. But instead of being a 35 millimeter equivalent, it's 28 millimeters. So it's a little bit wider. So it's sort of like my beloved Leica Q, right? Exactly, exactly. This is kind of like um, Fuji's affordable Leica Q. Which means you can buy four of them. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so to me, uh, this is an interesting camera because I I love my X100T. And I think anyone who's read uh, the review that we have on Tools and Toys is going to be aware of my affection for the X100 series cameras. But uh, the X70 is, is, is threatening that. 
Um, I'll be honest. I, I've been shooting with it now for a couple of weeks, and it is it is a really special little camera. Um, one of the biggest things that I like about it is the fact that it is so compact that I can actually pocket it. So this is something that people love about like Sony's RX100 series, for instance, is that you get really good image quality, but in a camera that you can literally put in your pocket. Fuji's never really had that. They've always had like a compact, the X100 series is, is their like compact, excellent camera and they're, they're magnificent, but you can't actually pocket them. Like no, no one, no pants I would ever want to wear can fit an X100 into their pockets. Um, but the X70, you actually can, and it's very easy into, you know, a jacket pocket or something like that, which means that it fulfills the role of like a carry around everywhere camera very, very well. Size-wise, it reminds me a lot of the Ricoh GR. Yes, which was a super popular camera that was released a few few years ago, and it also had a 28 millimeter equivalent lens. So these, there's definitely a use case for these little guys. And uh, I know a, a friend of mine, a photographer friend of mine, who has the Gico, the Ricoh GR, and he absolutely loves it. He takes it, like you said, he puts it in his pockets, and it's every day it's on him. Like it, it never fails because. Once you have a camera that you can actually put in your pocket, then there's no reason not to have it on you at all times, right? Exactly. And especially because the image quality from any of these cameras is going to be better than what you can get on your smartphone. Um, so it's kind of a, you know, if you're into photography, it's a no-brainer to have this. And it means that you can go to events where you don't really want to carry the rest of your gear. Even if it's a mirrorless system, which isn't very heavy, it's still something extra to carry. Whereas this is something that really doesn't, it doesn't even register as an additional thing. It's just, you have a camera with you. And it's a good one. Right. And it's it's also very approachable for people that are getting into photography, I would assume, because the 28 millimeter focal length is roughly similar to what you get on an iPhone when you when you use the camera on your iPhone. So I would imagine that most people would be very comfortable with the X70 right from the get-go. And that's that's great. That's another great feature. Yes. And and not only that, but actually they they've in They've implemented a switch on the top of it beside the shutter speed dial. And it's basically this one little thing that flips into auto mode. And when you do that, it ignores all of the other physical controls and dials and puts the camera into a very simple, straightforward, automatic point and shoot mode, which is terrific. Um, and it's terrific even for those of us who like really enjoy photography. Because for instance, if you're going somewhere and you want someone to take a picture of you, um, you know, with your family or something like that. If you hand them a complicated camera, it, the results are unpredictable at best. Right. So the knowledge that you can just flip the camera into auto mode, hand it to them and tell them to press the button is awesome. Um, and the other factor is the screen, unlike on the X100 series, uh, articulates. It folds outward and it actually does the full 180 flip. So you can do the, you know, the selfie um, image mode which uh, I don't get a tremendous amount of use out of, but it is very cool to have. And I think it'll actually make it a possibility for people who want to do like home video type things or, or like video blogging, um, which is something that you normally wouldn't think of a Fuji camera for just because that's not something that they've um, been known for before. But um, now that they've got this X70, I, I can definitely see people using it even in that role. Cool. Um, I'm just looking at it and it's a very, very beautiful camera as well. So for people that are concerned with the looks, with how their equipment looks, that's also a very good way to go because the Ricoh GR is ugly, let me tell you that. <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm sorry. 
it's an excellent camera and whatever, but I'm sorry, I wouldn't want to take that out of my pocket if I were in a nice place. Sorry, Rico. I thought I was the only one. <laughs> I'll, I'll let you I'll let that sink in. Do, do you miss the EVF, Marius? Uh, I do. I do. And I think uh, actually one thing that might be worth talking about is how it compares with the X100T because I've got them side by side and I'm very familiar with the X100T. I feel like that's that's a question that a lot of people are going to be asking themselves because I'm asking myself the same thing. Like if I didn't have the X100T and I had to choose between these two, even if price you know, was not the same, obviously the X70 is cheaper, but if it wasn't, which one would I choose? Um, and there are a number of factors that, that make me continue to lean toward um, the X100 series. One of them is the EVF slash OVF. I'm not a huge stickler for optical um, viewfinders. I like them. I really, I, I do enjoy shooting with them. I loved it on the X100. I love it on the X Pro 2. Uh, it's fantastic to have, but I could go without it. Um, what I don't like being without is an EVF as well. I, there's something about the handling of a camera, bringing it up to your eye. Um, there's something about shooting that way that just feels better to me um, than looking at a screen. And there's also something to be said for the visibility of um, a screen in bright outdoor sunlight. Um, you know, the fact that it articulates is great, but it doesn't really stop glare. It doesn't, you know, there, there's certain limitations like that that you just can't get around um, looking at a screen. So the fact that the X100 series has the optional EVF there is terrific. And that's, again, not even taking into account the fact that it's optical as well and that you have the cool hybrid mode. Like, even if none of that were true, I like having a viewfinder. Right, and, and even if it was only an EVF, uh, typically the EVFs have a much better refresh rate than the, the the display on the back of the camera. Exactly, exactly. So there, there's also a functional difference there between the, between both. When if you're shooting, uh, I don't know, a kid playing with a ball or something like that, something that has a lot of movement in it, then that becomes very important as you're as you're trying to keep up with the movement. If you if there's even the slightest amount of lag in the in the EVF, then that becomes a real problem when you're shooting. Um, and so yeah, that that's why I've always um, really loved the EVF on 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 my cameras, the, the the two that I've used regularly for the past year and a half or so. And you can always make them sharper. You can always make them bigger. The magnification make it better. But having it, just just simply having it. It's a, it's a real advantage for me. Yeah, and I think that this is going to differ, again, based on on sort of where you're coming from um, when you're considering the X70. Because if you're upgrading from a smartphone, then you're not used to shooting with an EVF, so its absence is basically not going to matter as much to you. Exactly. Um, but if you're, coming, if you're coming from a camera or you're t thinking of the X70 as a way to augment the rest of your kit, like just, you know, this is your walk-around camera beside whatever system you normally use then it might be a bigger factor. For me, another thing that I miss more than I thought I would is um, the built-in ND filter that the X100 series has. That feature, I cannot tell you how many times it has saved my ass in really sunny situations where I want to use shallower um, depth of field, I want to open the aperture up, and I just I can't because it would be too bright. Um, having that three-stop ND filter at the push of a button is incredibly convenient, and I miss it on the uh, I miss it on the X70 a lot. A ND filter being like neutral density. Neutral density, right? Which will darken your image uniformly by about three stops. Which again, in a sunny situation, will allow you to um, open up the aperture wider, get a nice shallower depth of field, or whatever other effect you're after. 
Um, it just gives you more flexibility when shooting. Normally, you have to actually like screw a filter onto the front of your lens. And so the fact that this is just built in is is terrific. Right. As, as a guy that always carries uh, a couple ND filters, <laughs> every time I grab the camera, I can absolutely imagine how much easier my life would be with a built-in ND filter in the camera. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> Yeah, I have it. I have it set to like one of the most prominent function buttons, and I use it all the time on the X100T. It's just, uh, yeah. So I miss that on the X70. Um, the other thing is the lenses are are different, and they're different in meaningful ways. So the X100 series camera has the 35 millimeter equivalent field of view, but it also differs in that the aperture will actually open up all the way to f2. Um, the X70 only opens up to f2.8 which means you're getting a little less light gathering capability, even though you've got a wider angle of view. Um, to me, I like being able to open up to f2. I wish the X100 would open up even more, frankly, um, but even just f2 is, is fine. So the fact that I'm kind of stuck with 2.8 is annoying, um, but it's not a deal breaker. What, what makes it um, difficult the other way around is that the X70 has a better lens. Um, and you wouldn't think this because the X100 series is, of course, the, the flagship small camera from Fuji, but um, it's it's pretty unequivocal that the X70 lens is sharper across the range and just plain better, um, no matter what conditions you're shooting it in. It's, it's incredibly sharp. You can shoot it wide open, up close, and get amazing images, um, which is one area where the X100 series cameras will let you down. Um, if you're at f2 and you're taking macro shots, they are noticeably softer. I mean, they're still perfectly usable, but they're noticeably softer than um, f2 at a distance or stop down. Yeah, is that a meaningful difference? I mean, do you notice them when you see them side by side, or are you thinking about it all the time? Is that I notice it. I notice it, um, and I think it. I mean, again, this is I. I've been shooting with the X100 series cameras since the X100s. I've and it's sort of like my main carry around camera. So I, I do have a lot of, uh, I'm very familiar with the images that it puts out. So for me now, the X70, I really do notice the difference in the lens's performance. Would someone who's, you know, not used to shooting Fuji or who is, you know, it's their first camera. I don't, I don't think they'd notice. I don't think it'd be meaningful. Um, quite frankly, it's not like it's going to stop me from using the X100 photos. I mean, I've used them for you know, years now and professionally and, and casually. So there's, it's, it's really not like I'm saying that the X100 lens is bad, but it is worse than the X70's lens, which is, is fair. I mean, I mean, that's just, that's just the reality. The technology moves forward. Fuji learns more and more about building great lenses and evidently the, uh, the X70 takes advantage of this. So, yeah, I think to me, the, the extra stop of speed and the tighter, uh, the longer focal length of the X100 series would win me over. I think I would appreciate more those having those two things than I would appreciate uh, some increased sharpness from the X70. But that's just me. I'm I'm a 35 millimeter guy all the way, so it's understandable. Yeah, and this is where this is where I think uh, there's going to be a lot of debate between the two cameras, and that's why I kind of wanted to compare them directly a little bit because it. I know that these are questions I was asking myself, and these are the the things that stood out to me as I'm considering both of them against each other because honestly again like the x70 by name you would think it's like a lower tier camera but but actually it's a sibling to the x100t it really is um so those are kind of my my thoughts on that i'm, I'm still working on the review of it because um 
thankfully, Fuji does not rush me with these things, so I get to spend time with them and, and actually get a, a thorough impression. Um, but the X70 is a is a really special little camera. Like the X Pro Two is obviously a flagship, so of course it's wonderful. But this one, I was surprised by. I didn't expect to like it as much as I do. Right. And how do you, uh, as an experienced Sony, uh, Sony, I'm sorry, Fuji shooter, uh, how would you? consider the difference between the X-Pro series and the X-T series? Because I've always been very confused about how those two cameras uh, coexist in the Fuji lineup. I think that the simplest way to look at it is X-Pro means you have an optical viewfinder and X-T means you don't. Um, because basically the X-Pro one is now, from a technical perspective, it's just an outdated camera. It's very capable, um, but the only real distinguishing feature about it besides the, you know, the older sensor, which some people prefer to the newer one, but that's, that's a separate discussion. The only real distinction is that it still has an optical viewfinder. And the only other camera is either an X100T or a, an X100 camera of whichever generation, but then you don't get to switch lenses. Um, or the X-Pro2, which is in a different price class. So that's kind of the distinction. The, the X100 series and the X-T series are, um, I mean, it's almost like each one is its own family, to be honest with you. Like the X-T1 is a fantastic um, DSLR styled mirrorless camera. It's extremely fast. The EVF is probably the best I've ever seen. It's extremely large. Um, magnification is, is huge. Like it feels like you're being swallowed up. Um, and it's just a very pleasant, comfortable camera to shoot with, especially if like me, you're a big fan of, of physical controls on the camera. Uh, you know, ISO is on the camera, shutter speeds on the camera, apertures on the lens, like everything is a dial. You can actually like turn the screen off entirely and, and just shoot, which is what I do quite frankly. Um, I love that about Fuji that that's Fuji was perhaps the one system that I seriously considered switching to from my Olympus camera. In the end, I, I chose to go with a Sony a7 II, but uh, it was a very close call, definitely. Right, and same here. The only kicker was the 16 megapixel sensor. Yeah, which now is a problem that's solved with the X-Pro2, but that wasn't at the time when you guys were making the decision. Right, it won't be long before that bigger or better sensor comes into, uh, comes into the X-T2 or whatever it is. Yeah. Right, hopefully at least. And to me, it's always been very interesting to see how those two, the X-Pro and the X-T lines, uh, sort of were occupying the same space. And the only difference that I could that I could see was sort of a philosophical one. It was, do I prefer a rangefinder-style camera or do, I, or do I prefer a DSLR-style camera? And there are, of course, good arguments for both. But uh, I once the XT one gets an uh, an upgrade, uh, I guess we're going to see two very similarly specced cameras once again, and it's going to be a matter of personal personal preference mostly. Yeah, and I think that's good. I mean, the the fact that you have that choice within the same system is terrific, and the fact that you share lenses between them and that you share like processing between them. You know, if the if the same sensor technology makes its way over, even if the XT two ends up being more geared towards action shooting, you know, if they make it um, even faster to lock, or actually, I don't know if they could make it faster to lock focus because the X Pro two is really quick, but um, to track focus, for instance, which is something that uh, mirrorless cameras in general still struggle with. I think if if they focus on 
on AF tracking with the X-T2, then that would be a meaningful differentiator. And then you could say, okay, look, if that's important to you, then the X-T2 is the way to go. You lose the optical viewfinder, but frankly, if you're shooting sports and wildlife, that's probably not as important to you. Um, you know, that's a generalization, but still it's, it's probably true. Um, so then yeah, it's, it's ergonomics, it's speed. Um, but this is all speculation at this point because we don't, we don't actually know anything about the X-T2. This is kind of just an educated guess based on what seems reasonable, um, for them to do with it. Exactly. Exactly. To me, one of the interesting things, and this is a piece of news that, that popped up this week. Um, one of my favorite photographers, uh, David Duchemin, he actually announced that he's switching to Fuji from his Nikon system. Um, and I'm very surprised by this, not so much because, um, uh, you know, because I, I don't think professionals use Fuji because they do. And I mean, I do, but the, the weird thing to me is that, uh, David is, is, uh, one of the photographers who is renowned for steering people away from gear as a discussion point. And, and he's very candid about how, um, in his view, the gear is really one of the smaller contributing factors to what makes a photographer excellent or what equips them to make excellent images. And, you know, for, for them, um, for, for, for David to have switched systems at all is remarkable. Um, and the fact that he chose Fuji says a lot, I think, about the way that Fuji finds itself in tune with the needs of certain kinds of photographers. And I am uh, one of those kinds of photographers. David turns out to be also... Um, and we have a link in the show notes to an article um, where he sort of describes the reason for that transition. Um, did, you, did you guys get to read that? Yeah, I loved it. It was a very interesting article to read. And I found myself uh, actually nodding in agreement all through, all through the article as I read. Because even though I don't... Um, that the, the reasons that made him choose Fuji... Uh, are probably the same that the ones that made me choose a different system, but the the principle is the same. So I definitely think it was a very interesting interesting article to read, and I I think he makes a very compelling case. Uh, even though it's basically a gear post, he still uh, mentions that this is not what matters. That he's just making a call to make his life easier, which is pretty much the ultimate goal, if you ask me. So lots of lots of interesting stuff to learn from and to and to assimilate in that article for sure. Right, like lighter, cheaper gear that gets out of the way quickly wins every time. It's hard to argue with that. Yeah, exactly. That's pretty much it in a nut. Yeah, yeah, and I think that's that's the important thing. Is is uh, it's one of the things that's also very difficult to discuss as a reviewer, and this is a challenge that I think we've all faced um, writing reviews of of cameras. Is there's this aspect of how it fits into a workflow. And it's very different from its technical capabilities. It's very different from what the spec sheets say. Um, and it's something that you really can't judge until you've had a chance to put it through its paces in a variety of scenarios. And that's why I think camera reviews in general, I don't really trust early ones um, because there's, you know, there's almost never enough time to form this part of, of uh, the judgment, which to me is the most important part. Because I mean, I can read spec sheets. I know how to interpret them. But what I really want to know if I'm considering a new camera is, you know, does it does it get out of my way and does it make my job easier? And that's one area where I feel um, Fuji has has made a lot of uh, a lot of headway. I think they've they've done great things as far as asking photographers and being just very candid about, look, this is uh, 
we're making these cameras for you. What do you need from them? And then actually implementing those changes in a very transparent way, which is good because it means, you know, it translates to situations like this where very talented, you know, high profile working photographers are willing to switch away from other systems um, simply because of this like ergonomic superiority um, for them, which is amazing. Like that's that's really a big win on Fuji's part. And I think it should encourage them to continue this philosophy of, of developing products that they've got because obviously it's it's working. Yep. Yeah, <laughs> hard to argue with that, definitely. Yep. <laughs> to me, I, I thought, I found it funny that the thing that we've all praised Fuji the most for is the prime selection. And uh, it sort of caught my eye that David, the only he only uses one prime and the rest are all zooms. True. So that goes to show that Fuji has plenty of options for everybody, not just because the general assumption seems to be that they're good with primes, but they're good with everything, really. Yeah, and it also goes back to just what you need it for, right? Because the people who shoot with primes are generally using them in a different context than folks who shoot with zooms. And, and I know that David's photography work in general means that he has to be very quick to react to changes of scene and changes of context and right. while it's possible to have you know multiple bodies and blah 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 that kind of goes against exactly what he's talking about in this article which is he wants something simple and effective that gets out of his way right and so to him i think for him it, it's like a, it makes perfect sense yeah of course you're going to go with the zooms and frankly uh you know having shot with most of fuji's um zooms at least for a little while they are amazing. Like I used to have this preconceived notion that primes were always better and that zooms are a step down inevitably. And there, you know, there's an element of that, I think, just because of the physics of how the glass is arranged. But mm -hmm. honestly, the, the Fuji primes are superb, um, all of them. And uh, that in itself is a tremendous advantage for people considering the system because they know that almost any lens they pick in the system is going to be great at least optically, you know, some of them are slower to focus. Like the 60 mil is, is really slow, hmm. but when it hits, it's amazing. Like it's unbelievable the, the images that come out of it. And that, that's basically true for all of their lenses. And the newer ones are outstanding. Like the, the 90 mil prime, the new 35 F2, um, these are like unbelievably good lenses and quick and small. Like, it's just, it's fantastic. That's that in itself is a selling point. And to me, what I like the most about the system as a whole and the philosophy that Fuji seems to bring to the table is the, you touched on this briefly before, Marius, is the emphasis for having physical controls for every possible parameter in, in, in photography, right? And so you have an aperture dial on most lenses. You have, of course, your dedicated sh uh, shutter speed dial. You have the shutter release. And the X-T1 even has an ISO dial which to me was incredible when I when I saw it. So does the X-Pro2. It's a different kind of ISO dial, but yeah, same same idea. Right, but it just seems like such a clear vision and, and such a clear product that you can manipulate with your hands. And like you said, you can simply turn the screen off and just shoot away to your heart's content. And I think that's an incredible, uh, an incredible camera to have. Yeah, absolutely. So I definitely see the appeal for the system and and that's something i would like to see other manufacturers sort of emulate that emphasis for having physical controls there's not really a good argument for not having them other than just saving costs which is a good argument for them but not really for the users so 
Yeah, because it does complicate the mechanics of building a lens when you've got um, like an, a physical aperture control and things like that. But uh, on the other hand, like uh, like you're saying, I mean, the priority should be ultimately on what the photographer's needs are rather than uh, where you can shave off a bit of cost. Because frankly, I think the market has already demonstrated that if you build a fantastic lens that works and does what people want, they'll pay for it. You know, like especially the working photographers who I think Fuji is is aiming this at. I mean, they're they have consumer facing cameras and and there's an impression that they're sort of this prosumer level um, family. But to me, their aim is really firmly at the professional photographers. And to me, this comes out not only in the fact that they do go out of their way to um, to make these kinds of, of physical um, advantages um, as far as the design of their cameras and lenses, but also in the way that they support them, um, which manifests in basically an endless stream of firmware updates. I mean, if you've ever owned a Fuji camera, it's pretty amazing um, just looking at, for instance, the, the X-Pro1 when it was first released versus the X-Pro1 as it functions today uh, because of all of the firmware updates that have come out. Even something like the X-T1, which uh, as of the firmware version 4.0 that was released last year, basically became a brand new camera. Like there was a whole new focusing system and it performs significantly better. And, you know, like the, the fact that they do this rather than just um, always releasing new camera bodies is encouraging because if you're investing in a system, it's nice to know that it's not just, you know, your camera is not going to be abandoned the next year. It's supported, it's developed. And uh, yeah, it's it, there's something to that, I think. Definitely. Best yeah. part about this article is that he's a Canadian. Naturally. Yeah. Naturally. <laughs> Canadian. <laughs> I chuckled a little bit when I read that, actually. But yeah, he seems like a good guy, just like you guys. So. Oh, thanks. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, to go back a little bit to what you were mentioning, uh, the, from the, I, I'd like to uh, say a couple things more about the aperture dials and the dedicated controls. I think there's a good case to be made that it's um, it makes for a better overall experience, but it's also a better design. Period. Because if you think about it, when you have the aperture ring on the lens, uh, both your hands are engaged in the photographic process and you control two of the fundamental parameters with your left hand which are the uh, focus and the aperture and the other two you control them with the uh, with the right hand which is the shutter speed and the the actual uh, releasing the shutter motion and that all comes of course from the film era which, where you needed to do that on a regular basis because you couldn't there was no uh, autofocus and there was no there, there was no electronics to take care of some of that uh, work for you. Yeah. Uh, and in the film era, the ISO was effectively set when you chose uh, your film because that the, every film has a different sensitivity and, and as such, it has a different... Practic in practical purposes, it's like having a different ISO. So once you, once you put the roll in the camera and you... Uh, adjust the sensi sensitivity of the camera, then you're you're done. You don't have to do anything else for the remainder of the roll. And and to me, it just seems like a very logical and a very optimal design. You have two hands after all, so you use them both in the process. And today, uh, with modern digital cameras, it's very easy to become uh, reliant on using your right hand for everything. And I'm not saying that's a bad design, but I think it's worse than what we had before. 
It's certainly a different way of shooting. I, I think um, what you said about being more engaged in the process is something that I feel very keenly when I use Fuji cameras versus pretty much any other manufacturers that I've used so far. It's There's something about the way that you can use them and the way that it just becomes about you shooting and and that's it. And the technology kind of disappears in a very uh, positive sort of way. Like it just doesn't matter what you're holding. You're just taking photographs. You're, you're making images and everything that you need is right at your fingertips and that's it. And that's a fantastic experience. Exactly. But even if you have all sorts of electronic uh, commodity features built into modern cameras, there's just no no good reason to get rid of those controls that are so helpful for so many people that learned to take photographs uh, many years ago and even people that are learning today uh, you know the old school way with a with a cheap film camera and getting to get in their grip on how everything works together i think it's just a more conscious more deliberate way to to take pictures and personally i much prefer it so that's why i'm a little bit disappointed when i see modern camera systems letting go of that a little bit and focusing on the electronics part uh, and using that sort of as an excuse to get away with making a, a design that is not as polished and not as optimal as i would like it to be yeah, I think my only complaint on the like physical control side of things for Fuji is that many of their lenses, and, and for instance, the X100T, um, the focusing is still a fly-by-wire system. So it's not like you have a hard stop at each end. And that's like the only, to me, that's the only thing that lets me down when I'm doing manual focusing. I really like on older lenses, or if you're shooting like a, um, you know, a traditional Leica rangefinder or something like that, there's actually like a hard stop right. at each end of the focus scale. So you know, okay, if my focus ring is turned to this position, you know, four feet in front of me is in focus, like always, period. And that just a physical bit of evidence for um, distances is pretty amazing. And it, it really falls in line with the rest of the controls, but it's something that um, Fuji hasn't yet implemented. And for me, um, one of the suggestions that that I have for them going forward um, on the X100 especially is to make that one change. Like, I yes, I want weather sealing and all of these other common things that people ask for in the X100 series. But to me, that would actually be a more meaningful change is give us a hard stop at each end of the focusing scale. Just make it more physically satisfying to do manual focus because I think that's a big part of um, the experience of shooting with a rangefinder style camera. So if you're going to go for that look and that style and that shooting experience, then you know d do the full experience, like go all the way. Absolutely. And it's not just an experience thing. It's a functional thing as well. Yeah. Because once you have the heart stops, there's this uh, photographic technique called the zone focusing technique. And that's super popular for street photography where you're kind of shooting stop down a little bit anyway. So you have plenty of depth of field to work with. You can actually uh, shoot without looking through the viewfinder. Uh, if you have those hard stops, you like you were mentioning, you become surprisingly good, surprisingly quickly at guessing how much of your focal plane is going to be actually in focus. So you can, yeah, shoot from the hip, as the cool guys say these days. Yeah. <laughs> and you can use that technique to be more inconspicuous, to capture more, uh, more spontaneous, candid moments that you otherwise uh, perhaps wouldn't be able to get. And that makes a real difference. Besides that, there's, of course, the added benefit of the fact that it's just a much more pleasing experience and a much more 
uh, it, everything feels like it clicks together and it's more cohesive and it's more um, just more satisfying really but I think the functional part is also important and to me that's what the newer Loxia lenses that Zeiss is making for the Sony E-mount system that's the main attractive of those lenses that these are actual manual focus lenses the same way that Zeiss has been making them for decades only they include all those uh, electronic integration uh, electronic features so you can control the aperture from the camera if you want to but if you don't want to you have a perfectly good aperture ring on the lens yeah and having those choices i think is always the best way to go uh, when companies unfortunately decide to take that choice away from consumers and uh, i don't know uh, the only explanation i can find is that it's just a cost savings measure but even if i understand it i can't help but feel a little disappointed by that yeah, I'm I'm right there with you, and that's again that's that's my only real complaint on the physical side of things because everything else is very immediate. Like you know the fact that there's a physical dial for every other control, it's just you're in tune with the process. But then you you do some manual focusing, and even though the flyby wire is very good and the manual focusing aids are excellent, it's just not as immediate, and you feel it, especially in the context of a camera where everything else is 100% in step with the physical controls. So. That's you know neither here nor there, but there it is something that I hope that they consider for the future, not only for the street photographers and for the others who use the zone focusing method, but just in general. I think, like you said, it's there's something appealing about that experience of of focusing that that is worth pursuing. I gotta get me as a Fuji guy over here. <laughs> get reviewing this. <laughs> yeah, you should. You should. <laughs> 